You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hi, welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc. And today I'm here with Henry Chesbro, who is, I guess we'd say the founding father. Is that all right? Can we use that terminology of open innovation concept, which has really taken off in the last 20 years. It's probably safe to say that there's no self-respecting company that does not claim to have an open innovation strategy. I think they also probably have some trouble defining what it is. I think if you ask 20 people in the strategy world to define open innovation, you'll get 20 different answers. So I thought the best thing to do would be to go directly to the source and ask you, Henry, what the heck is open innovation? Why is it so important? Why do companies have to have an open innovation strategy? And I guess ultimately, do you think at some point the concept will disappear because all innovation will be open innovation? Henry is the author of numerous books on open innovation, the most recent of which is this one right here, Open Innovation Results, which I think has the benefit of a good 20 years of experience. You can talk about the applications. Got a couple others. This one is Open Services Innovation. And then the original book, Open Innovation, which is I have somewhere in the house in a box, so I couldn't find it. And there's even one more between Open Innovation and Open Services Innovation is one called Open Business Models. Yeah, Those are the four that create the canon, so to speak. Right. You're not done building on that canon, I'm sure. (laughs) So let's come back to your question. First, thanks for having me on the podcast. And I know you have some other really wonderful people. I'm very pleased to be in such good company. So thank you for that. And you're right that open innovation has lots of definitions. Eskimos have loads of words for snow. And everybody has a definition for open innovation, not just strategy scholars, but people in companies. As I was getting ready for our podcast, I went out on LinkedIn and I did a search on people in LinkedIn using open innovation in quotes as my search term. And I got more than 800,000 people on LinkedIn who have open innovation. And you only know half of them. Yeah, right. So... I think if we were to be able to figure out what all those 800 and some thousand people are doing, there's a wide variety of things. But let's start with the definition and then we can build out from there. So I define open innovation as a distributed model of innovation involving flows of knowledge across organizational boundaries for both pecuniary and non-pecuniary purposes. So that's my definition of it. It really can be contrasted to the literature on economic spillovers that comes out of the work on R&D going back to Dick Nelson and Ken Arrow in the 1950s. And in those days, when you did R&D, you often got what you were looking for, but you got a lot of other things that you didn't plan on. And these other things were spillovers that flowed beyond the organization to the wider world, and they were essentially unmanaged consequences that it's too bad, but it's part of the process, and it was essentially a cost of doing innovation. Well, with open innovation, these spillovers become harnessed and channeled and directed so that now it is a not just a cost of doing business, it can be a source of new revenues, 
a source of greater differentiation, even a source of getting things done faster than they otherwise would be. So that's what I mean when I say open innovation. I think it might make sense to contrast it with where it came from. And in the traditional view of strategy, right, you go back to Chandler and Michael Porter, I think you you characterize the strategic methodologies that at least Porter will advocate as being something in line with the more closed innovation model. And I think this is certainly the model that most of us were kind of trained in, which is that companies have R&D as a internal resource. Most of the ideas that they attempt to monetize are generated internally. And these spillovers are actually seen as a, in many ways, a bad thing, right? Because it means that you've, right, you're right. generating positive externalities that you failed to capture. The whole point of Porter's version of strategy is how do you build barriers to imitation, barriers to entry? How do you try to capture all of the value that you create? And you know, I used to work in um, previous life in, in competitive intelligence and competitive intelligence is all about like, how do we go and essentially take the innovation from others. And then, you know, those others are doing everything in their power to prevent you from taking these insights. And so if there are spillovers, a la Arrow or Romer, these are not only unintentional, but they're also in, in many ways a deterrent to innovation because if you can't capture the full value of the investment that you make, you know, you're not going to make investments. And that's why you need the government to fund research and so forth. Right. In fact, Ken Arrow made the argument all the way back in 1962 that the social return to R&D was greater than the private return, generating that externality you just mentioned. And his policy prescription was for R&D tax subsidies by the government to induce companies to do more R&D than they otherwise would do. And that was kind of the economic policy argument to stimulate at least the supply side of innovation. That's the world that I encountered. And one of the pivotal moments for me was the work I did at Xerox, particularly Xerox Park, where I spent a couple of years really going through the halls and meeting a lot of the teams and programs within Park. But I also made a point of collecting information on companies that had spun out of Park, where Xerox didn't want the work to continue anymore, so they cut off their internal research funding. And in these instances, my research started when the internal funding was stopped. And then the question was, what happened after that? And this is a question that Michael Porter would never entertain, because it was no longer in the boundary of the firm. But the result I found is something that I think Michael Porter would be very interested in, which is if you took these 35 projects that I was able to identify, and if you could have created a portfolio tracking option on the market value of these 35 companies, you would have been a wealthy man. Most of them, by the way, never did really succeed in business at all. But a few of them, about 10 in total, became publicly traded companies to the point where their market value exceeded the value of Xerox itself from which they came. And that is a result that's very counterintuitive in a world where most of the action and most of management's attention should be focused on what's inside your four walls, what's in your innovation pipeline for your business. And all this other stuff is either an externality that's regrettable 
or at best it's a distraction that you shouldn't pay much attention to. Well, the Xerox work suggested, actually, there's a lot of potential value there, but you're going to need a different kind of a model to tap into it. So in a way, it's kind of a story of failure, right? Because on the one hand, suppose that you thought Xerox should be able to monetize this in some way and to continue to provide some kind of reward for the investment that they're making. One approach would be to alter the way in which they approve projects internally so that those spinoffs would ultimately just become part of the, the Xerox portfolio. And the other is to figure out a way to actually continue to generate a benefit from those spinoffs rather than having those spinoffs occur without any flowback to the investors. Yeah. And I guess if those are your options, then it's really, you have to understand what are the, the internal capabilities versus those external capabilities and try to improve them both. But it's also about really understanding the comparative advantage of these two approaches. So now we get into some interesting questions. And given that your podcast is called Unsiloed, and the implications of barriers within organizations from one silo to the next. I think you're going to love this next observation. Back in the mid-1980s, Bill Hambrecht of Hambrecht & Quist came to the head of Park at the time and offered a proposition. Let me join you in reviewing your pipeline of projects internally and the things that you're going to take internally from Mother Xerox, those are yours. But the things that Xerox is not interested in, let me have a look at them and see what I might be able to do with them. So that's a very simple threadbare process, but it shows some really interesting possibilities of what companies could do. And we can criticize Xerox for not agreeing to this, but I don't know of companies today, with a few exceptions that I'll come to in a moment, that where VCs are shown the internal pipelines of companies, and invited to say, you know, if you're not going to take that one, we'd love to have a chance to work on that. Now, one of the reasons why Xerox turned them down, this was Bill Spencer, who was the head of Xerox Labs at the time. He was later a board member of LECG, David Teese's first big company. Well, Bill turned down the offer because he was worried it was going to create moral hazard for Xerox researchers, that suddenly, instead of Xerox researchers focusing their work on things that are going to create value for Xerox, mm -hmm. having such a process could create incentives to focus on things that would going to launch out of the lab into private companies and make these guys rich. Mm -hmm. And Spencer didn't want to create such a moral hazard inside the organization. So on the one hand, I completely agree with what you're saying about how there should be more than one way to think about commercialization. But once we bring in these other processes, we do open mm -hmm. new questions. And in Spencer's mind, it was a can of worms. Now, I don't think he understood just how big the opportunity was. And even with all these concerns, if the opportunity is big enough, you might still say, you know what? It's actually better for everybody, including our shareholders, if we do this. But that was the reason he turned it down. That highlights the importance of organizational design, right? The way you've articulated that, I mean, that's really an organizational technology problem, not a scientific technology problem, but an organizational design technology problem. When I talk to people who come and visit Silicon Valley and they say, like, what's the secret sauce? They're focused on AI and machine learning and VR and AR. And I say, well, the secret sauce is really org design. Like, how do you design 
organizations where the incentives for innovating are, are actually in alignment. Innovation is not punished or thwarted. It kind of reminds me when the Frederick Terman model for Stanford University, where professors are rewarded for commercial ideas. At Berkeley, at least until fairly recently, if you wanted to pursue a commercial idea, I mean, you needed to quit your position as a professor. One or the other, you couldn't do both. Yes, that's right. I think the practice now is to take a leave of absence. And at Berkeley, you can take up to two years and then come back. So I think Jennifer Doudna, for example, of CRISPR fame, has been involved in, I think, two different startup companies utilizing CRISPR. She remains an academic faculty member at Berkeley and, of course, just won the Nobel Prize. But she's also been involved in startup companies. John Hennessy, who was the president of Stanford University, took three leaves of absence during his academic career. He was previously the dean of the engineering school and before that, the head of the computer science department. But during his three leaves, he actually started up companies in the semiconductor chip design space. And he still sits on the board today of Google. So the earlier arm's length, even somewhat adversarial relation between universities and startups, I think, in Doudna's case, and especially in Hennessy's case, I think we've gotten past that. And there's yeah. an idea that these are different processes, but they're in any healthy innovation ecosystem, there's room for both. I mean, I'm a lawyer, so I, I kind of always like to look at the legal landscape, but I think that org design and contract design, these are areas where we've made quite a bit of progress. When people from other countries say, well, how is it possible that you can be a professor and, and have a commercial interest? I mean, doesn't that open the door for corruption? Or how can you in California prohibit non-competes and yet at the same time protect trade secrets? Like it's got to be one or the other. And we say, oh, you know, we figured out a way to do this. And so I'm wondering when we think about this idea of more complicated relationships between companies where you license technology or maybe even you have people working in multiple companies at the same time. To what extent is this really a case of good fences make good neighbors? Mm -hmm. Like in the old days, you either had to commercialize some intellectual property or you had to abandon it. But now you can license it out. There's a whole bunch of different ways that you can profit. I mean, we look at Tesla now wanting to just give away patents. There are ways that they make that money back through other channels. So is it really about the development of good fences and then the ability to write complex contracts and the ability to monitor the usage of these ideas? And if everything was a trade secret, then you couldn't do this. I do think good fences are a part of the story for the reasons that you articulated very well, so I won't repeat those. But there's another dimension as well, I think, and that has to do with the value of openness we know well the idea of growing the pie versus dividing the pie. What's interesting is the way that fences can help grow the pie, and also communities and openness can independently help grow the pie. I'm struck by two recent transactions that to me are almost oxymoronic, and they took place in 2018. Microsoft bought the GitHub repository mm -hmm. for $7 billion, and IBM acquired Red Hat, which is a distributor of open source software, primarily Linux. But if we take Red Hat, the Linux source code was available to everybody, not just Red Hat. Everybody had access to it. And yet IBM paid $34 billion with a capital B for a company whose core technology was available to everybody. 
And I don't think IBM made a mistake, by the way. I think what IBM was doing is they are buying both some processes that Red Hat has developed and relationships with a very large developer community working in open source. And IBM, in its strategy to create a hybrid cloud, is going to need those open source developers to do all the detailed programming work to connect IBM and its cloud to AWS and all the other clouds. That There's too much detailed work for any one company to undertake it, but the open source community through Red Hat really has the ability to do that. And if as long as it's framed in an open way, they might well do this. And that's why IBM paid $34 billion. So I think this question of what's generating value, the fences really do help. Rob Merges at Berkeley's Law School did a survey of startups a few years back and found that once startups get their first patent, it's easier for them to raise funding because now they've got a sort of badge of credibility and the investors have some sense that there's something real and tangible in this startup. I did a study with a postdoc of mine looking at companies in the solar industry. And our question was slightly different, but similar to merges. Our question was, once you get a patent in this industry, do you become more collaborative or less collaborative? And there were reasons to think it might go one way or the other. If you look at an Eric von Hippel, he thinks that patents and trade secrets and these things create friction in the gears of innovation, and they impede the flow of knowledge that you want. So in his world, it would be better to get rid of all this and tear down all the fences. Mm -hmm. We actually did a study where that was the research question. Does it help or hurt the collaboration once you get a new patent? And our findings were actually consistent with merges, that once you get a patent, the number of collaborations you engage in goes up, not down. So that it's a yes and yeah. rather than an either or. There's clearly an optimal amount of intellectual property protection, right? I mean, there's an optimal amount of property protection regardless of what domain you're looking at. But if we think about rap music, and I'm sure you're a big fan of, of rap music as am I, right? So if we want to know where's all the creativity coming from, I mean, it really is it's a very different attitude towards not only cultural attitude, but legally the structures are in place for you to aggressively borrow from previous ideas. So in the old days where George Harrison wrote a song that sounded in any way like another song, right? Not only was he considered to be inferior as a songwriter. Oh yes, this is my sweet Lord, yeah. George Harrison. Yeah, yeah. And was unable to capture any of the royalties associated with the song, right? You know, now it's it's like musically you can create a uh, you know a quilt work where you're building on previous intellectual property. When we talk about open innovation, you're very clear in saying that this is not like open source, right? Open source is a part of open innovation, but it's not the same. And if we go yeah, back in right. time, we look at those patent pools, right? So a patent pool was kind of a, a way of reducing the transaction costs, a very kind of brute force, blunt way of allowing different companies to utilize each other's ideas, you know, standards committees and so forth. Could you articulate exactly open source can be commercially hardened and, and you can combine the, the non-protected with the protected in some optimal mix? Right. I think that's very analogous to the rap music. Back in 2000, Steve Ballmer called Linux a cancer. And today, Microsoft is a leader in building on open source. And it's not only no longer a cancer, it's actually a fundamental building block in a lot of the areas that Microsoft works with. 
And this is actually a general point I won't have a chance to get back to, so I want to make it now and we can continue on. Open innovation is not simply open source, as you say. Open source is one example of a distributed flow of knowledge across organizational boundaries for non-pecuniary purposes, although, as we say, when they get hardened, they can turn into pecuniary purposes. This is also true of crowdsourcing or collaborating with universities or working with startups or creating supply chain innovation contests or working with intermediaries to connect seekers and solvers. All of these practices involve these knowledge flows across organizational boundaries. Mm -hmm. So they're all examples of open innovation. And I make this point because my academic colleagues often seize on one of these, and then they say, that's open innovation. They're all examples of open innovation. Yeah. I think when you give up one source of proprietary rents, it's usually because you've discovered another form of proprietary rent. So Microsoft's business model transformation has allowed them to generate far more lucrative ways of generating rent. So I teach the data science classes and we talk about how most of the algorithms, if you look at MapReduce and Hadoop and all these things, many of them were developed by for-profit companies and then they intentionally abandoned any intellectual property they might have in it in order to build out this developer community. But it's not because they were charitable organizations like they weren't doing it because they were like oh i mean they might say it they might say oh we want the world to be better no i mean they realized that you can give away the facial recognition algorithm but if you don't have a database of faces it's not going to do you any good right so the what's proprietary now is the data and not the techniques i think what you're suggesting is a very smart strategic tactic for anyone listening to this podcast and that is if you've got something special and unique and proprietary, anything that is complementary yep. to that, you would like to be as open as possible. And so these kinds of examples you're yeah. describing are things that they do put them into the public domain, not just the code, but they'll put out tools to use these things. They'll even put out developer kits, reference designs to help you get started. You want to build as big a path to your door as you can. Yeah. Openness is really, really good at this. Google's a perfect example. We yeah. want the browser to be free. We want the devices to be free. We want the internet to be free. We want connectivity to be free, but you got to pay for the ads. <laughs> you got to pay for the ads and we get all the data, which help us do a better job of shaping the ads for the advertisers. The other thing you might find interesting, and this is in a more recent paper I've done, is there are cases, though they are fewer, where things that were open were subsequently closed. Mm. So you can imagine a two-by-two two of open and closed before and after. And the main diagonal would be things that started off closed and remain closed, or things that started off open and are still open. And we can think of lots of examples in both of those. There are other examples where things started closed, but then opened up for some of the yep. reasons we've just been talking about. But the most interesting quadrant, perhaps, is the ones where things that start open but subsequently get enclosed. And a quick example of that is mentioning Google. If you look at all the Google apps that it has, those are now Google-specific things. They're not open source, but all of them began in open source. And Google worked with the community to kind of define what the minimum viable product was and what the critical things were that needed to be in there. And once they sort of felt like they had the spec, they forked it and did 
an internal implementation and they abandoned the open source parts of that. And most people, if they find out about it, they're not too upset because Google does a lot of other things that are very open. But in our conversation, it means that openness is really a strategy. Yeah. It's not a religion. Right. You're not always open. Open doesn't always win. Open makes a lot of sense in a lot of cases, but in ones like the Google apps, they're in competition with iOS and Apple. And Apple's much tighter integration lets them provide a very strong, consistent user experience. And in the Android world, with lots more versions floating out there, many, many more kinds of devices with the operating system running, as a developer, you don't always know what your users are going to see. So Google and Android have really tried to tighten this up to catch up to the user experience that's available on Apple. So there are reasons like that where at some point you do want to enclose and move away from open. Yeah, and I think that there's a tight connection between you know, your external strategy and your org design. And where I see that converging right now is in the focus on APIs. And I taught a course on digital transformation. The whole course was really a course on APIs. And we think of it as a new concept. I mean, most CEOs couldn't even spell API years ago. but <laughs> Or tell you what it means, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's really not a new concept. It's really built on like the modularity work, Kim Clark back in the day, all the stuff on modularity. I wonder, is it a coincidence? Is it a coincidence that the first edition of Open Innovation came out in the same year that Jeff Bezos and Andy Jassy made their famous edict in Amazon around APIs? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the fifth blank, I don't know, it was the fifth or the fourth blank was that every single API needs to be designed from day one with externalizability as an option. And so, like I just read, I think it was yesterday that Amazon has this motion detection worker surveillance tracking software, which they use in their warehouses. And now they're offering it as a product for anybody who has a warehouse so they can measure social distancing and so forth. And, you know, that's Amazon's entire business. You develop a tool or a module and then you see if you can find external customers and your external customers and your internal customers are essentially competing against each other. It seems like this is open innovation manifested in org design and, and market structure. It's really open innovation in the flesh. I agree. And I think it shows how deep and subtle these things can be. Because as you say, these edicts went out a long time ago. And for a number of years, other than promulgating it internally, Amazon didn't do much about it externally. And it was only when AWS really started to get going that we started to pay attention to these things. So it started from an early time. And there's something else about this boundary between internal and external that I think is interesting from a strategy standpoint. One of the biggest problems that I hear from companies trying to do open innovation is the following. They've got a front-end scouting group going around looking for hot new things, often in startups, sometimes in universities and other places, occasionally crowdsourcing or hackathons and things. They come up with some of these interesting new things that are genuinely new to the company. No one is working on this. No one is thinking about it. Their hardest problem is not that. There are a lot of ways to do those things, and we know more and more about how to organize and structure those things. What the hard part is, is how do I get my internal businesses to pay attention to this? Yeah. And this gets back to the internal-external boundary. Y Combinator is a well-known incubator here in the Valley. 
and they have a long portfolio of companies that they've nurtured, not only currently, but their previous companies as well. One of the things that they've done more recently is they've gotten a second stream of revenue from corporations who pay money to be able to get an early look at new things coming out of Y Combinator. And in the beginning, they would curate the portfolio of investments for each company and say, come spend a day with us and we'll show you what we've got that is relevant to you. And the people in the relationship managers would all come, but nobody from the businesses of those corporations would show up. Because again, it was too distant, too far in the future, too unclear. So Y Combinator did something clever. They started inviting competitors of the corporation mm-hmm. to the same event. Mm-hmm. So now the business unit people who couldn't find the time to participate earlier when it was just for the company, once it was opened up to competitors, they started showing up too. The reason they did that is that they didn't want to be subject to the accusation that they missed something mm-hmm. that their competitors saw. So they felt, I've got to be there to see it for myself. And if some of the competitors start showing interest in that startup, hmm, maybe I'm interested too. So it's a way of using the external to focus more attention mm-hmm. on the internal. So this is a deep org design question as well as a technology question. Yeah, and I think being here in Silicon Valley, we know all these outposts, right? There's dozens of outposts, and it's kind of like, hey, you you go be the innovation person. And there's this trade-off, and I think in your in your writing, you frequently say that the biggest challenge is when the innovation is inconsistent with the business model. And when we're evaluating managers, we're sometimes evaluating them for their ability to exploit, and sometimes we're evaluating on their ability to explore. Yeah, yeah. And there's very, very different metrics. So I'm wondering, when we, we look at a company and we say, hey, you know, who's in charge of innovation? A lot of times they'll be like, oh, that's the R&D. That's their job. Other times it's like, well, it's the M&A, M&A group, increasingly, that's kind of responsible for this. And then sometimes it's like, well, it's the procurement person, or it could even be the corporate VC, right? So there's now all of these different kinds of locations where the innovations might originate. But if you don't have a central kind of clearing function that allows you to orchestrate this innovation strategy, it seems like it's very, very difficult to align with the appropriate innovation path. How would you organize innovation within, say, a legacy company? How how does it make sense to locate the innovation and how do you do org design to make it most likely to succeed? This is a really important question. It's one of the reasons I actually wrote the book, Open Innovation Results. You started us in the right place because exploration and exploitation are both really important and they're really different. So most legacy companies became large and have a legacy because they did the exploitation right. And so they've got that process pretty well defined. And as long as the business is growing in a healthy way, that may be enough. But for most businesses, sooner or later, things start to mature and slow down. And things that were working great suddenly aren't working so great. Not that many Xerox copies are being made these days. So Xerox itself has this challenge in its own core markets. So you need to execute, you need to exploit in your core businesses, and you need some path to future growth that goes beyond the current core business. And one size fits all metrics is going to push you back to the exploitation side. If you only do the exploration, 
you can create a lovely artist colony and have lots of exploration going on, but you may never get scale and critical mass. So you can't do just one or the other. You need a way to design both. And some of the practices that I think help, I don't have a silver bullet for this. I think it's going to be a, what Jim March would call a garbage can. You need all kinds of different things, but you need to recognize, respect, and reward the exploitation. And you need to keep some budget and some management attention in reserve for the exploration. And I think for your senior leadership, you want your senior leadership to have tours of duty in both. You don't only want the guy who's done a great job of executing and has never had an exploration job. And similarly, somebody who's only done exploration and has never made a quota, has never hit a quarterly or a financial number, he's probably also not the right person to be at the senior leadership of the company. So we need to create processes for both of these. We probably want to rotate people. And at the highest levels, I think the C-suite needs to have elements of both in their compensation. Even the legal person, the chief legal officer, chief human resources officer, these people also should have a component of their compensation that is exploration-based and not simply exploitation-based. So this is a great discussion and one that I think a lot of people need to be thinking about. Yeah, I guess the question then is, does it make sense to have a separate like innovation P&L? We see companies that sort of set up separate entities, whether they're called outposts or whatever, responsible for doing all the innovating, or even you know an R&D department that's sort of responsible for doing the, the innovating. Is that the best approach? Is there a way that you can really design the kind of metrics that would enable you to evaluate the efficacy of this? And if you have innovation happening in multiple places, like the M&A department versus the licensing group versus the, the R&D department, if they have different metrics, is there a possibility that you're, you're locating your innovation in the wrong spot? Right. And I think that is a possibility. And more importantly, you can get sort of the sub-goal optimization where the M&A department optimizes for its objectives, but those are not 100% aligned with the objectives of the company overall. Back to the Bill Spencer, Bill Hambricht discussion, Mm -hmm. where you start to create these interactions where suddenly your internal researchers face a moral hazard, potentially, of which path to go on. What I think has worked well, and an example I can give from Open Innovation is Procter & Gamble itself back in the early 2000s. When A.G. Laffley came into the CEO role back in 2002, he saw this value of open innovation. They called it connect and develop. And he promulgated in his first year an edict that in five years, half or 50% of the innovations from Procter & Gamble were going to originate outside Mm -hmm. the organization. And at the time he did this, you generously might have attributed 10% to the outside and 90% was inside. And he anchored this in the compensation plans of all of his top staff, not just the product people, not just the marketing people, but the legal, the HR, the procurement, everybody had a component of their bonus anchored in hitting this target. And what was clever about that is given that we're talking in the unsiloed podcast, the silo managers, were partly compensated on the performance of their function, their department, as always, 
but they weren't only compensated on that. Part of their compensation depended on the other department, the other function. And so this cross-functional coordination that was needed to implement this open innovation, connect and develop program to hit the target within five years was really helped by aligning the compensation at the very top of the company. Now, I'm also mentioning you know, rotating jobs and career paths, and there are a lot of other things, some of which PNG didn't do. But I think this trade-off between exploration and exploitation is fundamental. When you structure separate functions to do the processes, that can be positive, but you've still got to bring it together at the top of the company. This is sometimes called ambidexterity. And knowing you, you're going to have a podcast with Charles O'Reilly sometime soon. Let's hope. On ambidexterity. I sometimes joke with my MBA students that they know they've made it when they figured out a way to delegate and outsource everything and they have nothing to do. But I think you, <laughs> you, warn, you warn in your writing of the danger of outsourcing all of your innovation. And we see that. We see some pharma companies have essentially said, let's just let the VCs fund all the, the research. And then when they get to stage three, then we'll think about acquiring them. I remember talking to Google a few years back about some ed tech stuff and they were like, well, we're just going to let somebody else figure it out and then we'll acquire them. What's the danger of completely divesting yourself of any kind of R&D infrastructure? The dangers, I think, are fundamentally of two kinds. The first kind is embodied in this old idea of absorptive capacity from Cohen and Leventhal or Nate Rosenberg at Stanford writing about why companies do their own R&D. It's to help teach them about other things going on that they can use as well. It's kind of like why McDonald's needs to own just a few franchises just so they can, you know, the information yeah. flows internally in ways that it can't cross firm boundaries. That's right. So by being actively engaged yourself, you are a much smarter partner and buyer of external stuff. That's one of the reasons. And the other, I think, is there's a serendipity that can come from doing things yourself that maybe don't fit your business, but could actually create something beautiful and maybe your new business. And if you're not doing any of that work, you never get those surprises. So all those Xerox spinoffs I was looking at, I started with 35, only 10 of them became public companies, but 10 of them became public companies. Mm -hmm. And so this is the kind of thing that the serendipity part should not be overlooked as well. Or if you'd like to think of it, it's like a dividend. The first reason to do it might be sufficient, but then there's this bonus or dividend that comes along every once in a while. Hard to predict, but if you, if you hang in there and persist, it's going to be there. That's the second reason, not to outsource everything. In business schools, there's the culture people and the incentives people, and rarely do they meet. And we've talked a lot about org design and so forth, but culture is a huge piece of it. And in Silicon Valley, I think the idea of open innovation is just so part of our DNA, particularly you know among venture capitalists, that it's like speaking in prose. You've been doing it, and you didn't even realize you were doing something special. But when you go to other places, I mean, you go to Europe and so forth, I mean, I've met with a lot of European CEOs, and, and they'll brag. They'll say, oh, well, I've developed this amazing way of doing things. And I've developed this amazing technology and I've developed this. And I'm like, well, who else is using it? And they say, well, oh, it's just ours. Like we have it all to ourselves. And I'm like, if you have a problem, there are probably 10,000 other companies have exactly the same problem. So why aren't you selling this solution to them, right? The idea of productizing. Yeah. This is the inside out. You mentioned inside out and outside in, right? The idea of like inside out mm -hmm. is in many ways very foreign. And the flip side of that, which is the outside in, you mentioned the 
not invented here syndrome. And I think that's another thing in Europe. I remember for many years, SAP, I think, was susceptible to this not invented here syndrome, right? To what extent is that cultural? And if you're trying to change things, do you have to start with the culture? Or do you start with the org design and the incentives and then hope the culture follows? You know, you're one of those people that really thinks about both. You're correct that I do think about both. And I think you're also correct that most of the time, these two camps don't talk too much to each other. They're kind of siloed from each other. So where do you start? I think some of it starts with how do you deal with failure? If you are trying new things early in an innovation program, there are going to be failures. Some of the projects, some of the experiments are going to fail. And what companies do to respond to those failures is going to have a lot to do with the incentives, but even more, I think, for the culture. And so if a failed project causes the leader of that project to be exited from the organization, that is a powerful signal to many other people in the organization of, you know, don't do that. You show me an organization that succeeds in everything it undertakes. And I'm going to show you an organization with a very, very flat to declining growth curve because the risk is inherent in finding the new things, particularly in an increasingly commoditized world where there's more and more pressure on prices in product markets and the differentiation is getting narrower and narrower. These are precisely the times when you need to find these new seeds of growth. And back to that exploration that we were talking about a few minutes ago. So you need to nurture that in your company, and there has to be room in that in your culture. And as we were saying, you can't take that too far. You can't only be pro-exploration because you've really got to execute and deliver results in the main part of your business, or else you won't have the resources to sustain your exploration activities. So you have to nurture and sustain both over time. And this is one of the reasons why I think outsourcing everything is a limited strategy, because it's really all exploitation at that point. But I, I do recognize and believe that you can go too far the other way. Mm-hmm. And if you are only thinking about exploration, you can devalue and demotivate the people that are doing the things that pay the bills, keep the lights on, and create the infrastructure that you're going to leverage for your future. One of the models that you use in your book, is, which I really liked, was this, this idea of applying like a confusion matrix to the idea evaluation process in, in R&D, right? So you have your, your true positives and your true negatives and your false positives and your false negatives. And so someone who does a lot of data science, this was like, oh, wow, I'd never thought it this way. And so one way to deal with that would be to improve the accuracy of that idea evaluation process and kind of reduce the errors. The other is to kind of change the cost-benefit matrix so that the cost of errors is lower. And Mm -hmm. so those are two different kind of dials that you can adjust. And it seems like with open innovation is in many ways about kind of reducing the likelihood of a false negative. And then the lean approach seems to be about reducing the likelihood of a false positive, right? So our colleague, for instance, Andre Marquis, you know, and Eric Reese and others, they will kind of go into companies and get them to kill bad projects earlier and get rid of the false positives. And I think what open innovation, at least the inside out view, is about like, hey, how do we rethink these false negatives? And so I think the lean approach and the open innovation approach are really kind of complements to one another. I completely agree. I see them as complementary as well. And if I can add a third dial to the, the little dashboard that you're building there, 
The third dial would be when you get something that looks like it's going to be killed. It's just not making sense. Put it through one more process that you don't put the other ones through. And that other third process is show it to outsiders yeah, and see what they say. And if they also decide, no, nah, it's, it's not for us, we're not interested. And if a few of those say it, then I think in as much in social science as you can have a true negative, I think yeah. that's it. You're absolutely right. So there's really two ways that you can have a false negative. I mean, one false negative is that we ourselves could have done a really good job of commercializing this, but we failed to recognize it. And then the second type of false negative is like, this is a genuinely good idea, but we're not really the best people for it. And someone else might be better for it. And so the goal is to eliminate both of those. And you can still monetize it even if someone else uses it. So I think the last question I want to leave you with as we get to the end here is that you made some very provocative comments at the beginning of your latest book really about kind of the macro consequences of innovation, right? And there's been a lot of discussion about the tailing off of, of productivity and so forth. You were trying to say that a lot of this has to do with the Romer idea of non rivalrous innovation and how ideas can diffuse and benefit the broader society, right? The Ken Arrow idea. This hasn't really been operating consistently across time periods so that there isn't necessarily a tight correlation between the amount of innovation that's happening and the impact on productivity. How does this tie in with open innovation? Yeah. In fact, if I may, I'm just going to set up your question a little bit further, which I actually do in the first chapter of the book. I begin with what I view as an exponential paradox. Lots of technologists have been arguing that thanks to Moore's law and other advances, that our rate of human technological advance is not only increasing, but it's increasing at an accelerating rate, thus making it exponential. Yeah, I mean, I've got a $200 million piece of computing equipment here on my phone. In the palm of your hand, yeah. yeah. So that's the exponential part. And if you think about what that should imply, it should imply abundance for all of us. And yet, if you look at the rate of productivity growth... Wait, you don't think abundance of TikTok videos is sufficient? I mean... It should be abundance economically as well, and not just in the U.S., but across the G7 countries, and indeed most of the OECD, with the exceptions, I think, of China and India, over the last 40 years productivity growth has been declining, not increasing. So that's the paradox. Technology is advancing at an accelerating rate. Productivity growth is declining at a reduced rate. Having said the paradox, what's going on here? And I think there's a few things happening. One is the knowledge infrastructure that things rest on has been decaying and underinvested in. So after Sputnik in 1957, there was a surge of investment in the natural, physical, and even social sciences. And federal spending on R&D as a percentage of GDP was about 1.6%. Today, it's fallen to about 0.6%. So we're running down the seed corn that funds the new ideas. So that's one thing I think is happening. A second thing that's happening is some of the institutions that helped to spread the benefits of this more widely. Think of the GI Bill, think of the national highway system, even the rise of Silicon Valley had at its root these public investment programs that helped plant the seeds. And we did a lot of that 
in the 50s and 60s, mostly out of rivalry with the Soviet Union. But once things got better and we got a little more comfortable, we haven't been making those infrastructure investments, and we've kind of been living on the investments of the past. So part of this is a call to say, let's get back to some of that. But the other piece of it that I think, to me anyway, was interesting, was some work out of the OECD about the best versus the rest, and how in areas like data analytics or AI, IoT, and other things, the very best companies were also advancing at a wonderful rate, maybe even an accelerating rate. And in the process, they're getting further and further ahead of the average organizations. And when we look at productivity data across an economy, we're looking at the average. We're not simply looking at the very, very best. So what's happening in part then is that the best are increasingly going ahead of the rest of us. And so the solutions to that are having Greg LeBanc teaching classes on how to do this better and disseminating this more widely. That's an important piece of it. Maybe training grants, vocational education, lots of things one could do, but it all starts with knowledge flows. And in this case, knowledge flows across organizational boundaries. So these are the things that I think are answers to the exponential paradox. And open innovation itself, I think, had a miniature version of this. When it first came out, everybody was excited. It was a big buzzword. But a lot of people in the financial crisis of 2008-2009 used the language of open innovation to shut down internal R&D spending and shift toward outsourcing. And our conversation has done a nice job of keeping those things separate. But in the usage of it, I think some people used the language of open innovation to run down their internal innovation infrastructure. So when markets came back two, three years later, the company's ability to innovate didn't come back with it. So I think in a microcosm with open innovation, that's a small example of what I'm seeing with the exponential paradox at large. So that's why I put those two chapters side by side in the book. Well, those are a whole bunch of topics that we're going to have to talk about at some other point. We didn't even get to the role of the university in all of this, which I think is there are some open innovation insights that could be applied to a kind of academic research that we could explore. But unfortunately, we, we don't have time. So this has been great. Henry, I really appreciate you joining the podcast. And I want to emphasize to everybody that Henry's got a whole bunch of books. This is the most recent open innovation results. Check it out. He's got a whole bunch of great articles, California Management Review, Harvard Business Review, a bunch of academic journals. Go find it on Google Scholar. You can't go too far in Google Scholar without finding Henry's work. So thank you so much, Henry. Greg, it was a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.